Hey there, my name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce Detoxicity, which is the podcast that you were just about to listen to. I hope that you have been listening and enjoying uh, for the entire time that we've been doing this. If you are new, welcome. If you are a listener of Longstanding, welcome again and thank you. Um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast. If you listen and enjoy, please feel free to leave a comment. Please feel free to rate on iTunes or any other podcast platforms that have the ability to rate. And please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it. It's not a requirement, but I would love it if you followed me on social media. I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. That is T-I-S-M-I-K-E-J-O-S-E-P-H. And I'm on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I don't need to spell that out for anybody. I'm also on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. But you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to be on the show or you know somebody who'd be a good fit for an interview on the show, feel free to reach out to me via either of those two platforms, or you can drop me an old-fashioned email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Once again, that is detoxpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy. My guest for this episode of Detoxicity is Mitchell Leonard, a composer and producer originally from Arizona, now making his home in Brooklyn. We actually started our conversation before he got the chance to properly introduce himself, which hopefully you consider a good sign for your future listening experience. From an artistic perspective, Mitchell and I talk about the fallacy of being too late to start over and the events that transpired to move him east to the Big Apple. Mitchell also explores his addictive personality and the unusual methods he undertook to mitigate his substance use. We also talk about developing a look for yourself, personal aesthetics are important, why it's important to be your truest self, see what I just said, and we get a vibe from why Mitchell created his latest project, Mainframe. Check it out. What I really want to ask you about, and I, I hope this gets included because I think people want to know. Sure. Is about the Hot Sauce Expo. <laughs> do people want to know about the Hot Sauce Expo? They, they do because people like me have never been to anything like that. So my first question is, how do you prepare gastronomically or is there any preparation? For me, there was no preparation. This was my first time going to the Hot Sauce Expo. So I, I wasn't aware of there needing to be any preparation. As I grew up eating relatively spicy food, so I wasn't too worried about it. But my buddy, Brian, uh, who's a great musician, told me about it. And he was like, I'm going to go. You should come with me. So I figured I'd uh, you know, head out and, and, and see what was up. It was fun. It's like you've been to record fairs and stuff like that before. It's basically like a record fair with hot sauce. Oh, okay. So like yeah. a big, but I'm picturing like an outdoor, because since it's in New York, it probably wasn't a big outdoor festival gig. It was probably like a couple rooms somewhere. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it's like the Brooklyn Expo Center where it was indoors, but you know, all the doors were open. They had these very high walls. There was an outdoor area. So, you know, all things considered, it was, it was pretty safe seeming. But, you know, they had a bunch of different vendors from across the country that were selling and, and sampling all of these different kinds of hot sauces made with different, you know, levels of spice. And they had, you know, drink vendors where you get a beer, you get a coffee or milk, which is something that you should probably have on your hand when you're sampling very spicy condiments. Okay. Um, were that, was there entertainment? There weren't like bands or anything. Nah, there weren't any bands. There were some contests. Like they had a hot sauce pizza eating contest and, and that a friend of mine participated in and, and some other stuff. So it was cool. Wait, strength of the hot sauce or amount of pizza? A strength of the hot sauce. The, the oh, well, both kind of. Oh. 
Um, There's a category for most pizza consumed and then like the hottest of the hot. Right. Okay, cool. So was there a sauce that you tried that you were like, this is inhuman? I I mean, there was nothing that completely like ruined my taste buds. There was some stuff there that was really spicy, but most of it wasn't spicy to the point of it not being flavorful. Yeah. Okay, good. So, you know, I picked up a couple of bottles. No novelty hot sauce where you're like, this is purposeless. And I didn't want to have flames shooting out of my ass uh, the next day. So I I sort of stayed away from the super, super spicy stuff. Right. But uh, people make those jokes. They're like, well, (laughs) it's going to, I'll be on the thing all day tomorrow. You know, they make kind of jokes with it. You know, the, the number one thing I thought of where my mind went when you said that was being a young man in a band, in an original band and consistently like, eh, like once or twice a year since I grew up in the West, having gigs that were festivals of some kind and you didn't get all the information, like somebody, friend of a friend booked it. And then sometimes you show up and it's like a hot sauce festival, (laughs) which is totally fine. However, if you're in an original band that's maybe doing some emotional content that you really feel passionate about, it doesn't play super well. You know what I'm saying? And people will say like, well, Hootie and the Blowfish is headlining or something like that. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, that'd be nice to be on that bill. Of course, this is 20 years ago. And you'd go, but they're playing like on the main stage at 9 p.m. You're like on stage 17C at like 3 p.m. And you're up there and you're like, you know, you're digging what you do. And you're like, Judy, or whatever. You're singing a song that really means so much to you. And people are just... They're just kind of eating right. and watching you and scratching themselves. And, you know, I just flashed back to those days of like, why are we playing the show? Sometimes when you go to a festival thinking it's going to be one type of thing and it ends up being something that's not at all geared toward music. But yeah, that's got to be weird. Somebody decides to put some bands in there. It's like it's like when you have a bar that just decides like we should have bands, but they don't do anything to set up for it. So this comes from years <laughs> of touring. So when you show up in San Antonio to this place, there's like a corner and two mics. And they're like, oh, you set up over there. And you think like, wow, there's no, no, there's no preparation. Right. Hosting a band. Somebody just thought, oh, we should have bands since it's a bar. Right. So we'll just throw them kind of in the corner. Yeah. You're completely incidental to everything else that's going on because no one's like, oh, I'm going to come here and listen to music. They're like, I'm going to come here and get drunk. And oh, by the way, there's background music playing. By the way, this band is is making it hard for me to hear the game. Right. That's what, that, that's what they're thinking. Right. Can we turn the game up because this band is kind of interfering with it? And you're yeah. still there, Judy. Or <laughs> you know, or I'm trying to talk to this girl or talk to this guy, and we can't have this conversation because the music's too loud. Yeah, possibly. The kind of place that I'm picturing people only have conversations at super loud volume. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that could also be a factor. <laughs> Oh, man. That never even occurred to me as someone who knows a lot of musicians that people would just kind of play an incidental gig and be like, "Eh, you know, I'm going to pick up some money and just hang out here and and play. But no one's really actually paying attention to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happens all the time, except without the pick up some money part. Ah. That, That part is usually, I mean, if you're touring as an original act, it all depends on what you do. Like if you've got a 50-50 where you do a lot of covers, but if you're primarily an original act, you, you know, you're happy to get some gas money 
and enough to feed everybody along the way. I mean, you're looking for 75 bucks, maybe a hundred bucks. Right. You know, it right. depends on the scenario, I suppose, but. Jeez. You know, the funny thing is as like, as the summer started and I'm like, okay, I kind of want to be social again. I was like, you know what, Mike, you do not want to get your calendar back to the way it was in 2019, where you felt like you didn't have any free time to yourself and you were doing all these things. And now my calendar is starting to borderline become out of control again. So it's like, how do I rein those horses in? So what, what happened though, when your calendar was that full, what was the upshot that you thought was negative or? Just not enough time. I like time to myself. And I also like more intimate time with a handful of people that I'm really close to. Absolutely. Yeah. As opposed to being at events where there are 20 or 40 or a hundred people. And I have to kind of turn the social button on and, you know, almost have to sort of play a role a little bit. Like I know how to schmooze. I can do all that stuff, but I, that's not my preference. You know, my preference is to be myself and have interesting conversations and thoughtful conversations and bond with the people that I'm around. So when there's a lot of folks around, my attention gets scattered and I feel like I can't pay attention to anybody and it, it, it makes me anxious. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of a drain on most people. I certainly feel that when I'm going to larger events, especially if I know people there, then it ends up being a dozen kind of fragmented conversations right? Um, that are cut off in the middle and then start again and stop again. Yeah. So... I don't know. I you think gotta, you got to learn to say no, man. Yeah. I, we have a couple of weeks off from work. I'm just going to kind of relax and again, like be intentional about the people that I want to spend time with yeah. and spend time with those people. Yeah. That's good. That's a, that's kind of a good manifesto to, to apply to your social life in general. It's the, it's the intention. Hopefully it becomes the reality, but I mean, yeah. that's in my control and I just need to go ahead and do it. Yeah. You know, you say that, but I think what's happened, what happens really often, at least from my perspective, is that you kind of don't, I, okay, I'll just say, I'm not proactive about setting things up for those scenarios. Okay. So what happens is I end up just taking what's lobbed at me, which is more often larger scenarios that aren't focused and are less intentional. And I don't end up in the situations that are smaller, more curated groups of people that I connect with. So I think it's something you really have to be mindful about Yes, to make happen because otherwise you're just going to get the broader invitations for the most part. That's kind of how I feel. You're right. You're absolutely right. So it have to be people that in your circle, kind of like you perhaps that say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this night happen with just the, just these people as opposed to, Hey, there's a concert. We should go check this out where there's going to be a lot of other stuff going on. Right. I mean, look, I love shows, but if you're going to a show, even if you're going with people, the focus is on the show and you're not really bonding with folks here. You're all together and you're having a communal moment, but you're all watching a show. Whereas, you know, in a smaller group, you can focus on people and and listen and talk and get that sort of deeper, uh, deeper emotional bond. Absolutely. You, so you still love going to shows. That's the big. I, I don't. I don't mind it if it's somebody that I want to see. It, it's like it's I'm not. From, I love it. To, I don't mind it. I. I I'm not. It kill me. Well, you know, I'm not. I, there's a group or an artist that I want to see. Then I want to be at the show. But I'm also like, as I get older, 
I'm kind of like all this standing and then the artist is two hours late and this tall motherfucker is standing in front of me and this drunk chick is still spilling her drink on me. And, and yeah. Yo, I, I totally know where you're coming from. I was there. I feel like I was there like 15 years ago, but I just <laughs> honest with myself. I feel like going to shows and like, uh, let me say this to, to preface it. If I'm connected with somebody, if I'm, if I feel connection with the artist, like it's someone that I've been following for a long time, or their music has spoken to me through certain times in my life, I'll cry. Like, sure. no problem. Like, I, I'm in it. I'm into it. And it will be an experience like none other. Okay, having said that, going to shows where I don't really know the artist too well, or I like a song, or somebody says, you should check this out, I feel like there's a, there's a culture around it that's like wine. Like, most people don't care that much about wine. <laughs> a lot of people bullshit about it. Like bullshittable topics where people like to bullshit about it. And most of the time they don't really know, or they don't really care. I feel like it's the same way with musicians. It's the same way a lot about shows is that people, in my experience, people claim to, I love going to shows and stuff, but they, I feel like they really don't. Some of them go like going to some shows, but I just feel like it's inflated, especially get older because they go through that thing where I'm, I, I'm the same way where I'm like, this is cool, but it's a lot of standing around and I have, you know, I haven't really seen that much of this artist yet. And Oh, here's that one song. And then there's a ru- the rest of the stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I could just listen to this at home at home. Yeah. Probably have kind of a better, exp- better relationship with the material. Yeah. Watching somebody play it and the sound's not good and all that stuff. So I just, yeah. I've, I've seen that my whole life when people are like, I love going to shows. I'm like, do you? <laughs> I mean, I, I had, might be bullshitting me a little bit. yeah, like I had this experience where I went to see Rakim like three or four years ago mm-hmm. and like Rakim is my favorite rapper of all time. I grew up in that era. I was like, I want to cross off my bucket list that I saw Eric being Rakim live and it was waiting and waiting. And this is on a weeknight, mind you. And I don't think he got on stage until like 10 30, 11 o'clock. And I'm like, yo, I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> Did you tell him that? No, well, no. <laughs> and it's like, all right, I need to get on the subway by midnight. So I'm going to enjoy an hour of Eric being Rakim and then like leave in the middle of the show and go home. Because if I go home any later, I'm going to be grumpy at work all day. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it's the sacrifices that you have to make. True. And also, like, now that we're talking about it, what, are, what am I trying to say? The, the fact that I don't use substance the way that I used to sure. really barely at all has a lot to do with it too, because that was kind of my, that was my go-to for long shows, open mics, all kinds of experiences where I'm like, Oh, this is kind of a drag now. Where's the booze? Like, let's just <laughs> more booze and we're good. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the tomorrow will be even worse. Right. But that's what I'm picturing in that scenario that you outlined. It's like 1130. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to get drunk because then I'll, I'll feel good. You know, I'll feel better right. about it. I won't be as tired. Yeah. But dab, but do one thing leads to another. And then it's two 30 AM. Yeah, man. That story goes, but I feel like that's a part of it too. Is like, I don't, I don't really drink anymore. So when it gets late and things aren't working out, then I'm kind of like, Oh man, I don't want to be in this. This is not yeah. a good environment for me to be in. I'm just like, I, I want my bed. Like, I want to be laying on my couch in my comfy-ass clothes with my shoes off, like, chilling. I don't want to be standing in this loud-ass venue, crowded, you know, smelling blunt smoke that I ain't smoking 
it, it just yeah. like I'd rather be in my space. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Sure. So this is such an old man conversation. It is really an old man conversation. We're having it. I'm yes. Because you know that someone listens to this, if if uh, this makes it and says, you know what, I don't really like doing that either. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'm going to that show on Thursday, I'm going to stay home and listen to the record and have a good time by myself. I think a lot of it is peer pressure, man. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and you gotta you gotta get to a stage in life where you're like, all right, people are pushing me to do shit, but I don't want to do it, so therefore I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you also got to be good going to having experiences on your own oh yeah no doubt shows on your own and going to movies on your own once you've kind of gotten over that because i assumed until i was i don't know until i was in my 20s i guess that everybody did that and then i started to hear little tidbits on social media of like and just people dropping in conversation like i've never gone to see a movie by myself and i thought really that's crazy (laughs) and then i realized that a large faction of the united states just doesn't do that they just won't go to something unless somebody else goes with them and i'm not saying there's anything right or wrong with that but i think it's kind of important to to have the ability no i am saying i'm saying that that you should be able to do that i think you should be comfortable kind of doing that by yourself because you know what the best thing about that is mike what's that that you can split whenever the fuck you want yeah that's right when eric b and rakeem when it's fucking 11 45 you're like my train's here i was like i'm out yeah when you when you got when you brought somebody especially when you're like, God forbid, a date, but even even just a social hang, you're there. I mean, you can't stay for 30 minutes and be like, well, I'm kind of tired and this isn't really vibing with me, so I'm going to go. You got to stay. You're right. There, you're in. And that's that was a great thing. And I often go to shows by myself. I prefer actually to go to shows by myself, partially for that reason. Because mm-hmm. it's like, if this person wants to stay to the end of the show and I don't want to stay to the end of the show we now have a problem because it's like, <laughs> I want to go home. And now I'm, I'm, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. And and now I, 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 I you know, kind of pissed off or, or resentful resentful is the word because <laughs> I'm, I'm now here an extra 45 minutes. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 I for sure. Oh man. Wait, so we should probably start from the beginning here. Cause yeah. You know, or, or if we're recording, because I usually like to start these off with like an intro. Okay. But I like to have the person that I'm talking to introduce themselves. Oh, okay. Sure. So, so my name is Mitchell Leonard. I'm a composer and a producer. And I do all kinds of other stuff too. I grew up playing music and I, my life kind of went in several different directions. And now I'm back to making music as full-time as I can when I have other obligations to fulfill, to keep uh, myself a bedroom and food and all that kind of stuff. And that's it. I'm kind of leaning towards doing these amazing collaborative multimedia projects instead of doing typical artist releases. There's kind of a backstory to that. I ended up in this situation with a project called Come Downstairs that I was involved in a few years back that was life-changing for me as a project because I saw what had happened at the end of the project. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to make pieces. I want to make full pieces that are thought-inspiring and full of subtext. And I don't want to go back to just kind of releasing works here and there and trying to find an identity, a genre-specific identity for myself as, oh, I'm this kind of writer, I'm this kind of writer. And that is 
completely to the chagrin of every publicist that I because <laughs> they're like you can't do that and it makes me crazy because I want to be a composer that works in different styles and I want people to be interested in my work to see what I'm going to do next not because they know what genre I'm going to continue to produce but that just that doesn't exist in our, our current I mean it, it can exist but that doesn't get play in our current world because the way the algorithms are, you've got to kind of stay in the same vein with the same name Yep. or the platforms that you're on are going to get mildly irritated with you algorithmically and say, look, this guy's doing all kinds of different stuff. We're going to push him to the back because we can't playlist and we don't know where to put him. Right. Do, do you feel pressure to conform or are you just at a point in your life when you're like, fuck it, I'm going to just go my way and so be it. When someone is telling me to conform, I do feel, I do feel a certain <laughs> amount of pressure when someone's like, don't do that. But yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, honestly, because I'm older now and because I've had so much life experience that has taken me to certain edges, a lot of my life is kind of just a free play. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, It's kind of like I walk up to the, to the arcade game and there's just already a credit in. <laughs> because... I feel like I kind of made it to who I am and I've made it to a comfortable place with myself for the first time in my life and I, I'm happy. So I'm kind of like, well, I want to do what I want to do, but it doesn't matter as much to me that certain parameters of success are met. Everybody wants to, people to hear their stuff. I want as many people to hear and see my stuff as possible. Definitely. But at the same time, I don't, when I was a kid, when I was, like 20 years old, it really mattered. The, the idea of being a successful musician in terms of some kind of fame and fortune was important to me. You know, like all, all yeah. the guys I hung out with and played with were like, we want to be big. So now I don't feel that pressure. I do try and play by the rules that that people that I hire lay out for me when I'm like, tell me how to get this in front of more people. And they say, do this. I'm not going to say like, well, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Like I hired this person for their expertise. So I do try and tailor what I'm doing to play by the rules a little bit so I can get a bigger audience. But no, I don't feel a ton of pressure at the end of the day. If I get good feedback from people and if I put something out into the world that I am really proud of, that's the most important thing for me. So I'm going to share something with you because you said something a little earlier that resonated with me, which was hitting a stage in your life. You made the quarter in the arcade game analogy. Yeah. And I feel that real hard because I want to say it was around the time I turned 40. Like my give a fuck button kind of broke. <laughs> and Look, I need to conform to some extent to pay my rent and pay my bills and keep a roof over my head. I like all of that stuff. But in terms of not living my life fully, in terms of being who I, being concerned about what other people thought that I was, there was a point in time when I was like, oh, I'm in my bonus right now. Like, I don't care anymore. And I'm wondering kind of if that's similar to what you're referring to. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I've never used that analogy before. I just kind of made it up for this instance. But but it does feel that way sometimes because I am in a phase where I can take care of myself. I can afford the things I need. Not really much more than that. 
<laughs> but I can afford the basic things I need. I have some some of the most amazing friendships that have gone for decades and decades now. You know, I, I just feel like I'm in a place where I really can't complain. And like a lot of that has to do with my sobriety, with, with getting my life together and kind of coming out of 15 years of heavy drinking mm-hmm. uh, and drug use. It kind of puts you at a place where I just feel like I'm settled and I know I'm confident with who I am. I know what my boundaries are. And obviously like I have bad days. This last release I went through was super, super stressful. Like I'm not skipping around all the time whistling and like who is often caps to people. But uh, yeah, that kind of plays into how I am with music because now I'm kind of like, okay, I have X amount of years left. I have to make as much as I can in that time. Like I don't have kids. I don't have other obligations besides being a good person and giving back in some way, which I feel like I do through these projects that are always, always a massive net loss financially so yeah so i feel like i just have to make as much music and art that i can before my time is up you know and whatever that looks like i I try to play by the rules to some extent to get an audience and so i don't you know infuriate people that are like i liked this song how come you're doing this other thing now sure but i i would really like to be known as a composer and as someone that only adopts and works on projects that have a theme to them, that have some kind of idea behind them that's more than just your typical love song or, you know, the the 90s stuff that I grew up listening to where it's like, I sit around, watch TV, my girlfriend, <laughs> or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that kind of stuff, which is good. And I like a lot of that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I hear what you're saying. It, but that's not who I want to be. Like I, I was the guy too, when I was growing up, I never wanted to jam. Wow. A lot of my friends would come through. And this is like going to shows, man. It took me so long to have the courage to say, I don't want to do that. Because I was like, yeah, okay, I'll jam. And then 15 minutes in, I'm like, no, 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 let's work on that part. And they're like, I'm just throwing out ideas. I'm like, I know, but they're good ideas. Right. Like, let's sit down and make it into a, I want to make something that's structured that at the end of the day, I can say, this is a work. This is a piece, whether it's good or not, even if it's improvised. Um, It's weird for me to just sit and play music that I know I'll never return to and that will never be heard again. Like I've, I like to work on a unit, like something at the end of the day where I'm like, that is something that I can now sit back and watch or listen to. But you want to have something tangible in exchange for your thought. Yeah, I think that's it. So it's better for me to go for, kind of go big with these projects than it is for me to do smaller releases. Now, having said that, next year, I'm going to take some time off and just do... I do this other thing on Twitch called the sleepy time session. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to start releasing that as music along the year. I'll do a few releases of three or four tracks from those sessions, but even that's kind of a theme. That's the general idea that sticks within a genre. So, you know, the, the PR people be happy (laughs) Um, and has a bigger idea behind it. That is, I want to bring other people into it and have it kind of become its own, its own thing. But yeah. How'd that next, how did that come about, though, the Sleepy Time Sessions? Oh, it's totally it's just out of nowhere. I was looking for something to do, like, as weekly kind of content, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, half because I wanted to, and then half because people kept telling me, look, you have to do something regularly. You have to release some kind of regular content. So I had 
I had uh, some like Tuesday tracks I was doing and all kinds of different stuff. And then as I got into mainframe, it kind of reawakened my love for electronic music that I grew up on. And I had these lights that I put on my fingers and just one night I started messing around with it and I started recording. And I thought, this is cool. I really dig this because it blends piano. I grew up playing piano. So it blends kind of nice resonant piano lullabies with an electronic edge. So I thought, oh, this is cool. I thought there's a lot of value in this. People are going to dig this and it's something I really like to do. So then I just started doing it and I want it to be a thing. You know, I started putting more and more work into it, practicing along the week, putting together these sets that were where I kind of knew more what I was doing rather than just improvise my way through it. And it's only been going, it's been going for four months now, something like that. Not a long time. Not a long time. So I figure after mainframe is done, uh, the promotional circuit for that is done, I think I'll start kind of trying to find an audience for it, you know, instead of just bugging my friends to listen to it. <laughs> I'm going to actually get out there and spend a few dollars and say, look, I want this. I want these kind of people that are into boards of Canada. I want these kind of people that are into other kind of groups to hear this because I think it would resonate with them. And I think they would really dig it. Right on. So you've basically always been a musician. It, it, it sounds like. Part-time just- or full-time, yeah. Did you just sort of like jump out of the room playing piano? Like, well, no, my dad was a jazz drummer. Oh, wow. So, and my mom was a dancer when she was young, before she had children. She would like tour with a chorus line, not, not the musical, of course. The chorus line, right. Like a, a chorus line. She would tour uh, way, way back when. So I started playing piano very young and that was it. I stuck with it. You know, on and off, I haven't, I got a lot of support from my family. I would pad out from my room with my little footy jammies on, <laughs> like Wednesday nights, and my dad would be rehearsing with his group in the front room, and they would get all excited and be like, hey, it's little Mitchell, and they'd come out and I'd play a song with them and stuff like that. I remember one of the dudes, Cy, was a sax player, the band leader, smoked these really, really smelly cigars. My mom hated it, hated it. And then after a while, that was done. No more smoking cigars. Sure. But yeah, that was kind of where I, what I went through. And then I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. You are, I think, the first person that I've met. You're definitely the, you're the only person that I, I know that I currently have in my circle of friends that's from Arizona, I think. Huh. A lot of people in Arizona, too. Huh. Like, I think it's fifth largest now. I think it's surpassed Billy. Maybe they don't come to New York. No, it's Arizona is very, it's a strange place because it's very well populated, but it's very spread out. Like urban sprawl is a, a really big deal and a very, it's been, it's just decimated the environment. The desert gotcha. there. So they don't have, I mean, there aren't cities like you would think of them. The number one thing that people say when they come to central Phoenix is where's all the people <clears throat> now, because there's not really a lot of people out and on the street, but Growing up there was tough because there's not a great cultural structure. And, you know, I don't, I don't wish anything right now. Maybe tomorrow I'll change my mind, but I would have been, here's what I'll say. If you are trying to pursue something, if you feel like you have something creative you want to give and you're in a smaller community, 
that doesn't really have much culture, get the fuck out of that community while you're young. Like that's what I would say, because I feel like I stayed there too long and it kind of started to sap my creative juices. It's one of those places where this, and what I just said, Mike, it might not be relevant because the internet is what it is. I mean, growing up when I did. Right. I mean, we grew up in a different, yeah, in a different time. I don't know what it's like now, but when you grow up in a, in an environment where if you're still a musician at 30, people are like, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. You're kind of looked down on. So you got to quote unquote, get a real job. You got to stop playing in your sandbox. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was something that I I probably has, has a lot to, there's probably still a very real thing in in Phoenix now, but sure. Yeah. what was the impetus for you getting the hell out? Well, I went through several phases where I was like in and out and I did some different things. But ultimately, I'll tell you what brought me to New York was I was with a really good friend of mine who I grew up with and played music with that had moved to New York several years prior. And I was visiting him and we were drunk on a rooftop and... It was like the next to last night I was there and he said, you know, you should really move here. You're not doing anything. Like I had kind of, I've been in Phoenix because my mom was real sick and she passed. And then I was kind of like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. I was already going through my, in my head of like, what's my future going to be? And what am I really doing here? And he said, you should move out here. And I was like, yeah, I'm so really going to do that. I'm moving to New York. And then I was like, no, I'm really going to do that. And then the next day I, w- I said, yeah, give me a year and I'm going to move. And I went home and started getting everything in order. I owned a house. Like I had to, I had a whole, like. You had a life. I had a life, like a moderately successful, regular life at that point. And I started piece by piece dismantling it so I could come to New York. And it took about a year to do it. But I stayed on my timeline. Right on. Were people like, you're crazy? Yeah. <laughs> I had one person who actually said, what did he say? He said, oh, I said, you don't think it's a good idea? So maybe like 10 years ago. Uh-huh. I was like, are you my, this guy's supposed to be my friend, right? But yeah, I had several people. Let's say I had a few people that actually verbalized it to me. Like, okay, man, you're kind of old to be making this, to doing this reinvention thing. Now and so I'm sure because of the way people are that there were several more that didn't say anything. Of course. We're also, like, oh, this is. I mean, this is an interesting move for someone to make at this stage of their life. But I mean, what else? I was miserable. Like, what else am I supposed to do? Like, lay down and listen to sad music and die? Like, there's right. no other. There's no other recourse. Like, you can try to to take that chance that there's a better life for you, or you can just. I, I knew I wasn't happy there, so. You know, there's there's really no other option. But I feel like a lot of people would actually be too afraid to make that move and they would kind of crawl up into themselves or figure out a way to Jedi mind trick themselves into saying, this is the better move. So I'm just going to stay here and enjoy the life, the unfulfilled life that I have. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a handful of friends, one in specific that had moved earlier and he every time he would come and visit. He would have that talk with me. He'd be like, look, I think you should get out. So I had that. That actually happened to me. Like I had that Jedi mind trick with myself for a number of years. 
but I think it was, and it was always something different. And this is what I experienced with a lot of people. It was always like, well, I can't leave because of this. Or I can't leave because so-and-so needs me. Or I just got this promotion. So I got to stay at this job. Maybe yep. it'll transfer me. So I just kind of ran out of things to think about. And yeah. Yeah. But that I, I know that a lot of people do that because I've heard that from other people too that I feel would might be better suited if they were in an environment with with more open-minded people. Yeah. And to be fair about it, people don't just do stuff like that or don't have that thought process when it comes to relocation. They have that thought process when it comes to staying in a job or maintaining relationships oh or relationships is number one. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Where it's like, you know, I, I, what's outside the, what's outside of my situation right now is too potentially scary. So I'm just going to stay with the devil that I know. Yeah. Yeah. True. Or it feeds me in some way. Like it comes back and feeds me again. That's what happens with relationships. That's what happens with chemicals is you end up like in a relationship, say you have that, you have those really, really bad times, but you can't imagine sliding out of those bad times by yourself (laughs) to a life alone. So you need what brought you down to bring you back up again. You know, you're trapped in that kind of cycle because in the good times, you're like, well, this is great. And in the bad times, you're like, well, I need to look, there needs to be that good time again on the horizon. For sure. I can't be on, I can't be on my own or I can't be sober because then what's going to happen at the end of that? Right. Jumping ahead a bit, was there a particular moment that kickstarted you into sobriety? Was it a gradual thing? How did that process play out? There were a couple things. I got super, super lucky. And I was dating someone that was the first person to really tell me, you're a fucking mess. <laughs> like, I don't remember exactly if that's what they said, but nobody says that because I wasn't shooting heroin and like laying around for two days. I wasn't strung out for three days on meth. Like when you're drinking especially being in the hospitality industry, which I've kind of relied on most of my life to keep the checks coming in. Mm -hmm. When you're drinking and smoking and those kind of things in that industry, it's totally okay. It's totally Mm -hmm. accepted. Now I'm actually excited because I'm starting to see a movement within the industry of people that are asking for support. I've seen people that are like, look, I'm going to be sober in my shift tonight. I want you guys to support me on that. Like that's magic. That's going to save people's lives out there because otherwise, I mean, it's it, not only is the behavior condoned, it's kind of encouraged. Condoned, yeah. 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 So, so, yeah, I had a person that I dated that just said, well, you're just out of control. I know you don't see what you're going through. I had lost a friend of mine around that time. And then I really went down after that. I okay. lost a friend of mine to an opioid overdose. And then after that, I was just in the bottle for a long time. I mean, still functioning, still going to work, like still, still presenting a game face, but in a situation where I don't feel like I was ever really at a hundred percent good days. I was probably operating about 60% capacity, you know, bad days, 30%. And then after that person, I started to chronicle what I was actually doing. I read the book, the Martian, you know, the movie, the Martian that was out while ago i've heard of that movie i don't know what it's about though yeah i didn't see the movie until i read the book but 
the, the person that I was dating gave me their copy of The Martian. I started to read it. And in that situ in that book, he's stranded on Mars and he figures out in the in the quaintest just heart touching way like he's like i have to survive so this is what i'm going to do i have this many potatoes i'm going to grow them for this long and instead of getting overwhelmed by situation he just figures it out he kind of sciences out how to keep himself alive in this you know broken out colony on mars so as i was reading that book i thought to myself i'm going to start uh chronicling journaling everything i do how many drinks i have how much pot I smoke, how many cigarettes I smoke. I'm going to start keeping a journal of all of those things. I'm not going to amend my behavior whatsoever. I'm going to do what I always do. I'm just going to start tracking data. So I started on that point. And after a couple months, I saw what I was actually doing to myself. And it was shocking because you don't realize. You think, I went out and I had, man, I had several drinks last night. No, you had 15 drinks. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. Yeah. You tell your friends, you, you're just the way you go. Yeah, I smoked a couple of cigarettes. No, dude. You bought a pack of cigarettes and smoked 10 in two hours. Right. That's not a couple of cigarettes. Like, I saw my behavior was impulsive. Um, it was reckless and it was just addict behavior. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like social behavior. It wasn't like I need to cut loose. It was like, this is. I wish there was a better word for it. I'm not thinking of, but desperate. It was like desperate behavior. Were you running from something or was it just like, I think, I, I mean, I've had a lot of issues within my family that run parallel to that. And I think at an early age, when I was a kid growing up in Arizona, I got into hard drugs for like two or three years. I think that kind of just tilted my clock a little bit. Like, cause I was 17 or 18, like people would, this is this is a lot that I'm laying down here on this podcast. Yeah, I'm here for it, man. And and I'm, look, I'm gonna go for it. Yeah, whatever you're comfortable talking about. I grew up in Arizona, right? Sure. So there, every everybody called speed at that time. Everybody called it speed. They were like, "Hey, people are doing speed, whatever." But it was crystal meth. That's basically what it was. <laughs> okay. So I ended up. I fell into people that were doing that for two or three years, and I got pretty bad with it. I got to the point where I was like, "Look, I got to get this together." I managed to get my head out of it, but it was a kind of a coming and going thing. Like we would do speed to stay up and then we would end up taking pills or drinking or whatever we could do to kind of calm down. Mm -hmm. So I got out of that phase kind of by luck. Like I had some friends that cleaned up and community kind of saved me and everybody was like, look, we got to stop doing this, whatever. So I got out of that phase and kind of in the beginning of my twenties, and then I quote unquote got my life together, but then I started drinking and I didn't really even notice it, but I was kind of replicating a lot of the same behavior with caffeine and alcohol where I would pick myself up in the morning by drinking caffeinated drinks or coffee or whatever. And then I would bruise myself to sleep at night. But since it's something you can live for decades doing. Yeah. It's, it's not considered. Kill you like yeah. opioids or whatever like that. I was able to maintain it for a long time and it didn't seem like. It wasn't really a big deal. Everybody was doing it. It was a couple times a week. No big deal. Binge drinking here and there. After shows, have an after party, stay up till five in the morning drinking. It's not unusual. But as the years go on and on and that behavior doesn't change or even gets worse, it starts to become more and more apparent that your body starts to break down. Can't mm -hmm. it anymore. So it starts to become more and more apparent that 
this is destroying your life and this is really costing you a lot of friendships, a lot of goodwill, jobs, whatever else comes by that when you run at 60%, you're just not functioning, you know? And a lot you know? of people don't realize this, but when you stay up late and you say, I have a few drinks and at the end of the night, you're like, wow, I had 12 drinks and I was up till 3 a.m. It takes your system about a week to, to really get back to normal from that, even as a young guy or young woman. So, yeah. So it was, it was one of those things where I think that it never really left me, Mike. I think that it was always there, like my addict behavior, mm -hmm. but I channeled it into more acceptable drugs that I could function on. And then as I got older and older, it started to just blossom out of control. When I left Phoenix, I was drinking a lot. And then I came to New York and then I was like, I don't even know anybody here. I became even more of a part of the culture. I got involved in a bar job that was late nights, a lot of drinking there. And I had some hard times. I lost a friend and then it kind of kind of bottomed out, as they would say. Then I had that person that spoke to me and they were like, this relationship is done, but. <laughs> as a word of advice. Yeah, you get your shit together. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, so things kind of fell into place for me. And I started reading that book. I started logging what I did and thought, okay, this has got it. When I saw it on paper. I thought, this has got to change. I can't go through my life doing this anymore. So I started to try and work the problem a little bit. It's incredibly interesting to me that you, I don't know if I'd call it foresight or some kind of, of internal thing that you decided to document what it was that you were doing so you could see it on paper. Like, I, I don't know that many people would, would also because... When you do that, it's right there in your face. And I think a lot of people who are addicted to things don't want to really know how much of it they're doing. Yeah. You know, I told myself it was really because I was reading the book and that was something that I I loved that the character did in the book is just took it all practically and just problem solved it out. But that was my only rule was you, I can't lie. I can't lie to myself. I don't have to stop. I can do whatever I want but I can't lie about the information because once I do that, it's over. It's all blown. And I've talked to some other people that have struggled with eating disorders and struggled with insomnia, some other things, just other bad habits. And that has always been my preaching point to those people is like, look, if you're going to take information down, you have to be honest about the information you take. Start saving data. Start just getting raw data down of what you're doing. Once you start lying about the numbers, it's over. I mean, it, it serves really no purpose. I think I, it was a huge wake up call for me when I saw what I was actually doing. And I think a lot of people, if they were able to see themselves doing something, you know, have you ever like, ever seen somebody fighting in a partnership? And like when somebody else comes around, they don't fight the same way. You know sure. Yeah. Like, or if somebody starts recording it, they're like, they, they don't fight the same way because they don't really want to know. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but they don't want other people to know. They know that they're engaging in bad behavior. Right. They don't want other people to know. Yeah. They don't want to be honest about the behavior that they're participating in. Right. So it's kind of a similar thing. If you see, a lot of times if you see like, oh, this is what I'm doing in this scenario, then that itself will kind of act as, as a start at least. So with that in mind, what do you do to resist temptation? I mean, not the royal you, you as Mitchell Leonard, what do you do to 
Yeah, that's that's tough because I'm not I'm not at a hundred percent. Like I go for what I started doing was setting myself goals where I would say, I'm gonna go for a week without a fail. And a fail is what I call drinking, smoking cigarettes, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure. a weirdo because I can go out with you and have a beer and go home and go to sleep. I can do that. I've always been able to do that. I probably will forever be able to do that. But there is a different side of me that takes over sometimes that's just a switch where I'm like, I want to drink. And there's just another me that comes alive and like, you're going to do this. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And they're like, yeah, you're going to, I got this. Don't worry about it. I'll work this out. It's the devil on your shoulder, man. But I'm not supposed to be, and they're like, no, 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 I got this. Just go to sleep, go to sleep. It's okay. I got this. We're going to have fun. It's going to be fine. (laughs) So, so it's tough for me because I'm not in that space. I have low grade edibles that I take from time to time. I'm not a sober person and I don't really want to be a sober person necessarily. I don't think you have to be. It's hard for me to balance it because A, I can't fully engage in programs that are designed for unilateral sobriety. And B, because I can make that delineation between I'm going to go out and have a couple beers and, and oh, I'm going to drink. Right. So it's tough. Like I, I don't, I haven't been ultimately 100% successful with it. What I was doing was setting myself goals like 100 days. My record so far has been 127 days that I went without drinking. Right on. And I went, there was one year where I did two blocks of over 100 days in the year. Two thirds of a year. The two thirds of the year, yeah. And then in the other times when I'm like, I'm going to go for 100 days. Usually after 100 days, I still want to keep going for a while. But then sooner or later that the little demon pops up and then I either manage it and say, okay, you're going to let yourself do this tonight, but you're going to get some food and you're going to drink water and you're going to get to bed on time. You're going to limit the damage as much as possible. Um, Yeah. I think that there's an adult way to manage consumption. You can have a beer or two beers or in in my case, because I don't drink beer, I can have a whiskey or two whiskeys or smoke a joint or whatever it is and be cool with that. You know, I can also go to a bar and have a club soda or Diet Coke and be cool with that. I do think that there are times when usually spurred on by other people uh, or, or moments, I will drink to excess. But normally I'm able to put a lid on it. And I I, I think that's the reason I, I don't think that I have a problem because 90% of the time, if I want to have a drink or two drinks, I can do that and call it. Like, I don't think you have to be 150% sober. I think you can enjoy things within reason. Well, you know, it depends on the person. Sure. Things kind of work for different people. But sure. To me, the idea of that, the idea of complete sobriety just doesn't work for me. I know it helps people and I believe that it exists, of course, but I don't believe in it. It's kind of like, going to a religious ceremony where you see, oh, this is awesome. And this really helps people, but you don't believe in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, my heart's not in it. Right. So, yeah. So that's kind of what I'm doing now is setting myself goals, stretches that I go for. And then when I come out of those stretches, I have people around me too, that I trust that I say, Hey, I'm going to, I need you to check in on me for this weekend. You know, like I just did that for last weekend with my partner. I said, 
this is going to be a tricky weekend for me because these factors all come into play. And that's one of the things, Mike, that getting all that data together helped me pinpoint. I was like, this is when you're failing. Hmm. When these factors come together, that's when you binge. So now I know, okay, I don't have a lot to do this weekend. I've had a really good run with this. I'm high on the success of something else that's going on. There's certain factors that come into play where I'm like, this is going to be a huge weak spot for me. So in that instance, I called upon my partner to say, look, I need you to check in with me. And just every night, ask me how it's going, make sure I haven't failed. And then just that knowledge alone, that accountability does a lot for me. Sure. Like I don't lie to people. I I don't. I haven't always been honest, and I probably. I, I guess I still lie to people in the same way that everybody does. But, <laughs> but, um, like right now in my life, like that's something that I. Don't, I don't do. I don't like to do. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to have to 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 keep track of shit. I'm with you. <laughs> like I'm with you. Like I was a little. I was a little schemer when I was a kid and when I was in my twenties and such. But now. So I'm, was I. I don't even want the pressure or the added stress of having to lie about something because then you got to keep it straight. And did I tell this person this and whatever? So yeah, you are speaking my language, having, having that accountability of just saying like, look, just send me a text and saying like, are you drinking? Having to, knowing that I'll have to answer that honestly. And I've done it before. I've done it before. I've been like, yep. And then you're just like, fuck. <laughs> terrible it's like just having that accountability does a lot for me but i don't know i'm i'm not this it's a developing process and I, it's only i've really only been working on it for a few years so i don't know what my future is like maybe i'll decide i want to go 100 percent sober maybe i'll join up with a group i mean i don't picture that i will have another phase where i really fall into a terrible spiral but that might happen i'm certainly not going to say I'm not going to be arrogant and say like, hey, I'll be good for the rest of my life. Like right. I could, a couple things change. I could be back into that, that kind of hell spiral for sure. So, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the future will be, but for now this, that's kind of my process is I try and go for long stretches. And then when I am kind of letting myself coast for a little bit, I'll kind of put my foot in the pool and inevitably what ends up happening is it's uh, the orbit starts to decay. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll yeah. go out and I'll be like, yeah, I had, I kind of tore it up one night. That's cool. I'm not going to do that for a while. And then three weeks later, I'm like, oh, I kind of want to do that again. Do that again. Yeah. Two weeks later. And then you're like, nope, I'm headed to the same. Now place. it's a habit again. Yeah. But then it's easy for me because at that point, then I'm like, okay, 60 days. That's what I'm going to do right now. And it actually makes me less stressed out because I'm like, I don't even have to worry about it now. I don't have to worry about should I or shouldn't I? I just set a number and that's going to be my goal. Hmm. That's super methodical. And I, I say that with the utmost respect that you just kind of set and reset goals. And I also appreciate the fact that that you are being honest, because I think some people would just be like, oh, and then everything was great and I didn't drink again or I know how to manage it or whatever. But you're saying it's an ongoing process, which I think is what a lot of people don't always don't always take to heart when it comes to things like this. Like it's, it's not, it's not a straight line. No, no. I mean, it's yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see kind of what the future brings with it. Now that, that, that is at least manageable for me. I'm kind of, I'm trying to work on other things like actually going to bed 
at a reasonable hour and getting like sleep <laughs> and other things like pointing me toward being a healthy and wise human. So the kind of the, the process of trying to improve on yourself never really stops. No, it doesn't. And it is funny to think of like that now I'm like, because I, I keep a sleep sheet where I every night I log in what time I went to bed. Oh, wow. What time I went to sleep, what time I get up. So <laughs> I know. Dude, like, you live on, you later, live on data. Like, I, th- I thought it was cool that he was methodical, but now it's fucking weird. <laughs> you live on data. I, it's a. Uh... So, so I'm just, I, I say that because it is, it's kind of, I don't know. It's cute, I suppose, to myself that now I'm upset with myself because I stayed up till 2.30 watching YouTube videos. I'm like, fuck, man, come on. Like, get it together. You know that that's not good for you. Like, it's not, Mike, it's not nearly the same. Watching YouTube videos is not the same. It's but, not. But it is interesting that it's that I've transferred a lot of that energy of self-loathing that I went through for 15 years about my drinking. Now I've transferred that to like, really, dude? Really? This is what you're going to do now? Come on. Like, get it together. Like, I'm, I'm still kind of beating myself up a little bit to try and make it to the next phase of general health. Do you think you're just addicted to self-loathing? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's more like the come on man syndrome than when it was, when I was drinking, it was more, it was 10 to 12 hours of anxiety, like sure. crippling anxiety. So it's not the same thing as like, get your shit together, Mitchell thing. That was more of a like, you know, like uh, at its best waking up and being like, oh, I don't feel so good, but okay, let's get some juice. You know, and it's worse, right. like rolling out of bed at 2.30 p.m. with your hand shaking. You know what I mean? because you haven't eaten or anything like that, like just trying to to get yourself in order to. So maybe that's a part of it, too, is I think it's more that I've seen how much better of a person I can be now. So I want to continue on that path of like, and I know that I've always struggled with insomnia, and I know that getting crap sleep limits your ability to be to be that person it limits yes your, it does cerebral abilities it, it, it limits your patience it makes you moody so that's kind of my next step is like look i want to be the best dude i can be so that's my you know the next phase right on yeah, sure, sure. so let's talk a little bit about mainframe yeah that thing <laughs> so yeah so mainframe was something that came about like i said i i did a, an incredible video with the stop motion and cellular animation artists or cell animation artist, Heisey Hu, a few years ago, in tribute to my friend that passed away from opioids that I mentioned. I put that together for him and produced that video with her. And after I was done, I was I put it up on a shelf and I thought, oh, that was amazing. I really wanted to do that again. So I started looking for other projects. I had one project that didn't really launch where I had the music and I had the artist, but it just didn't work out. We, you know, about three or four months in, it was clear that it just wasn't, wasn't going to be what we all wanted it to be. And then I found a piece in one of my late brother's notebooks that had the skeleton of mainframe. It had the wrongs and the rights. If you listen to the song, mm-hmm. you'll know, you'll know that that's a big part of it. And it started out with that in a world of no moral absolutes. I have a suggestion I think will clarify things. And it was just him writing. He was an avid writer. He wrote constantly. He has journals and journals and journals of his writings. 
And so I read that and I thought, that's kind of cool. I want to make that into something. And I started working with it. And initially, I thought, well, I could just go the easy route and make it kind of a, you have the wrong to do this, you have the right to do this. And that could really be a song. It's that that could be a hundred different house songs. For sure. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like it makes any, any German techno song could, could have that over the top of it. And then when I continued on with it, I started to see this character kind of evolve. When he and I were younger, we used to create characters and have little play characters that we had and make scenarios for them. And we do little voices and all kinds of cool stuff. And I've been doing that all my life since. I've always made up characters and voices for stuffed animals or people's pets and all that stuff. So I started to hear it in my head. And then I, I had a, a vocoder program that I was messing with. So that's it. So I started coming up with this multi-textured robot voice. And I put it together into a kind of a story. And when I was finishing up on the story part of it, there's some other elements to that too. I wanted to have a purpose. So I gave mainframe an identity. I thought this is a, an entity that will start out with a function. And then as the entity starts to gather more information and progress along the narrative, they will start to realize that they don't have these things that humans have. As they're outlining what our wrongs and rights are, what our abilities are, they'll start to realize that they don't have those abilities, so they'll start to question their place and what they're about. Then at one point in the song, they, it, when it gets to the, as you are dragged from the supermarket patch, that is actually mainframe worried about us. Mainframe has started to worry that since we are fallible in ways that mainframe is not, that perhaps something else will come for us. Hmm. Mainframe is now worried. And then Mainframe says, I will not let them find you. And I loved how that worked when I put it together because it sounds a lot like a threat. And I wanted people when they listen to it, although I'm just spilling all the beans here. <laughs> when, when people first listen to it, I wanted them to not know what was happening. I wanted them to be thrown off guard by it and, and feel potentially threatened now but what mainframe is actually saying is i will protect you i will i will help you i will keep you from that other threat because you are fallible because you have all these things that are working against you all the time there's so much stress and you have to make all these decisions and these are really hard decisions and you have all these parameters that are set upon you by governments and each other and so then i when I was messing with the vocal loops, I was cutting them up and I laid them out. One night, I, I had, I, I, I was just splicing words and putting them with other words and trying to make the most garbled, kind of fucked up vocal track that I could out of it. And it's, and it looped on, it stuck on the you have you. It went from you have the wrong to you have the to you have you. And immediately I was like, that is the theme. That's the positive spin. At the end of the song, you could argue that it's not positive, I suppose, but that's the message is that you have something that no one else has ever had, that no being, no, no being in all of the celestial bodies expanding as far as we know has ever had or will ever have before. Or again, you have your unique set of chromosomes and you have your experiences and they have boiled you into this meat sack that's unlike any other meat sack in the universe. And it's so... You, it's a, not only is it the, the most original thing in the world, it is also the only thing you really own. It's only That's what right. you have. 
you don't really own, you temporarily own clothes. So your identity is the only true form. It's the only thing that you really own at the end of the day. So I wanted to leave everyone with, I want to mainframe to fracture and that to be the message is that you have you. I wanted to end it on kind of a positive note. So that was the story that came together with it. And then the tough part was I had to pitch it to someone to, to animate it because I knew from the minute I started working on this, I'm like, this has to be a full piece. This has to have a visual element to it. So I had discovered Cheer Wong when I was actually doing the promo circuit for Come Downstairs. I was at Animation Nights New York, which is a outstanding uh, organization. If anybody is listening to this, you need to put that in your wheelhouse if you care at all about art or animation because they do a lot of free showings, not only around the city, they have they do showings online as well, and it's some of the most cutting edge, imaginative animation from all around the world that they curate into Word. their shows. So I met her briefly at that show, and I saw her short therapy room, which was amazing and distressing. <laughs> I mean, it's deeply, deeply disturbing, especially if you've had to deal with any kind of mental health issues, or that's something that's on your radar. So I saw that, and I put her name on a short list of people that I wanted to work with in the future. So when mainframe kind of came to fruition, I made sure it was all done. I tidied it up as much as I could and I pitched it to her with the idea and she was down and I had it all, you know, I was, I'm glad I did it the way I did because I was, you know, I wanted her to be on board because she was so talented and she had such a distinct vision and such a distinct personality in her works that I didn't come to her and say like, Hey, I'm making this song and it's for my brother. And here's, I was like, no, I'm going to get the whole thing. I'm going to get the music done. Cause I need, I need to, I need a hook. Right. You know what I'm saying? I need to put my best foot forward here, which is also advice I give to people that if they're working with bands or they're just a songwriter, I'm like, get some songs down and then find other musicians to work with. Because not only does that kind of improve your value, but you can just find kind of better people, people that are more focused. If you're like, this is what I do. I've already shown that I can produce something because how many of us along the way have been like, yeah, let's try this project together. And then six months later, you're like, this is, not <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. So she said, yeah. And then yeah, the rest is on YouTube. When we started working on the project, it took, we got uh, behind several times. She, you know, worked with me on it for a song basically. So I had to make time for her other projects and for her main income. Yeah. And we kind of put it together. And then along the way, the really interesting part is that I, my, the first thing I wanted to do was to make it to have video clips in the animation, baked into the animation as it went. So I had another animator, Preston Spurlock, who's a Brooklyn kid, fiercely talented Brooklyn kid that was working on putting together some glitch video clips. Like he has hours and hours of old VHS footage and he glitches it out and just some of the most bizarre stuff you see. <laughs> but then as, the, as, as his video started to take shape and Cheer's video started to take shape, it became clear that both of these videos were distinct works on their own that really couldn't be put together without compromising the integrity of the work. There is, there are a couple scenes in the background in Cheers animated video that have some of Preston's work in them, mm -hmm. but it did not end up being the whole 
I don't know, 70, 30, 80, 20 work that we had first in, imagined of having mostly animation with some video edits in there because honestly, what she had did, what she, what she did was jaw dropping. And then what Preston did was also just jaw dropping, right? fantastic. I mean, when I was done, I was, I thought this is beautiful and I don't, it needs to stand on its own. It needs to be shown from beginning to end. So, so I ended up converting that. I thought, okay, I'll make that into a lyric video. And then we went through several phases with that because the first phase of the lyric video, just, it, it, I just didn't feel like it fit at all. I'm like, this is too obstructive. Now we can't see the background. So it became one of those things of like, I'm fighting to try and make, what am I, what am I trying to say? I'm fighting to try and make all the parts work and still maintain the beauty that I saw in the piece and what we ended up with was fantastic. I couldn't be happier with the end product of both cheers animated video and Preston's um, now lyric. Yeah. So that's, that's why we ended up with two videos for it. And then I was like, I want to do a bunch of remixes. So I just went for it. I really bit off way more than I can chew. And so I solicited people for remixes and then that'll be kind of the phase three phase one, which is out or, or depending on when this is aired, uh, has been out for a while is the animated video phase two will be the lyric video that Preston put together and my friend Bryce Pravat and then who did the graphic the actual lyric work on top of it and then phase three will be the remixes which was its own sticky bucket of fun that was that was a new experience that was both harrowing and stressful and amazing to be able to collaborate with with people in that regard too but it's it's got to be such a dope feeling to have that to be able to look at that and say, I had a hand in creating that, or I was the driver behind that. Oh, like, yeah. It's, it's an amazing high for sure. Be like, able to look back on it because I was very, I t it took a long time to put it together and I micromanaged the shit out of the process. <laughs> like multiple people that I know that worked with me on it. Although at the end of the day would probably say like, yeah, he's a great dude. And we had a good time. Multiple people I knew were like, oh my God, stop sending me notes. Mitch, I hate you. Stop yeah. sending me notes. It's fine. Leave it alone. But at the end of the day, I'm glad because it got to be it just perfect. It got to be, I mean, nothing, art is never finished. It's abandoned, right? Right. But it got to be as perfect as I could make it through those processes and looking back on it, I'm really proud of it. Like I was, I'm not, I'm, I'm reveling in it a little bit. I'm not right now. My mindset is not like, let's move on to the next project. I'm still kind of like, I'm a little awestruck when I look at the whole body between the remixes and the videos and even just the song itself. I'm a little awestruck that I did it. Living it. I know that sounds like I, it, it, people might take that as being egomaniacal, but it's, no. really I'm just, I'm more like, I can't believe that I created this thing. <laughs> like The thing is, when you create something, the impulse for some people might be to move on to the next thing. But it's like, what's the point of cooking a delicious meal if you can't enjoy the delicious meal? Yeah, but I think most people, most the cooks that I know that are really good, they eat while they're cooking. And then by the time it's time to feed everyone else, they've kind of already eaten. I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like, there's, there has to be a certain point, like you don't stay reveling in it and you don't let your reveling in that one thing influence like the next five things you do. Sure. But I do think that there's value in creating something, appreciating it 
like letting that feeling roll off of you. Yeah. And then, you know, and then kind of gradually taking on the next thing. That's, that's new for me because I'm definitely an on to the next thing guy. So this is the first thing I've done where I'm kind of like, let's stay here for a little bit. I already have, I already know what I'm going to do for my next project. I have a lot of the steps already taken, but I'm kind of like, also I'm coming out of a scenario where I was working another job 40 plus hours a week and managing the release so I'm kind of like looking, tired, man. Yeah, I haven't put any art up on the wall. Like, <laughs> you know, like things just haven't gotten done. So I think I'm. I think I'm going to focus on the sleepy time sessions for a while and maybe chill. With you need some Mitchell time. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I am alone all the time, so I got plenty of Mitchell time. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I need some. I just need some time to do the dates, do some of the nuts and bolts things. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I got two more quick questions I want to ask you. One is your aesthetic. So when I met you at Dan's place, I was immediately struck by the fact that you looked very well put together and not like, not in like a super GQ kind of like way, but like you obviously put thought into what your presentation was and you had the hat and you had the shirt and, you know, the funky socks and like you had your whole, like, is that, you seem to have an aesthetic. Where did that come from? I think it came from not being able to do it when I lived in Phoenix for so many years because you just get tired of being stared at. Really? And you get tired. Yeah, absolutely. And you get tired of people like making comments about you. What would so, they say? I don't know. They don't make them to you. <laughs> to other people. But I mean, and that's not everywhere in Phoenix. It's just, you know, I grew up around Scottsdale and kind of different parts of different parts of the valley there. So yeah, when I got to New York, I was like, wow, I can do whatever I want. Like I can be whoever I want to be. And part of it too is getting older and you kind of, you, you give fewer fucks. So you kind of want to take more chances, but yeah, that's kind of where I come from. I've always dug hats. I've always been a hat dude. You know, I have kind of a big white light bulb head. Oh, that, that catches the light and like, <laughs> glares it at people. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's probably I probably think it's worse than it is, but like so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've seen you without a hat yet. So ever since it was worth, yeah, I got I got a little bit of hair up there, but overwhelmingly it's mostly forehead. It's what my my old hairdresser would call five, five head. Five head. Yeah, that's a common joke. I suppose. Yeah, maybe six six point five head yeah. in my case. But so and so I've always been I've always been a hat dude, but then yeah, when I got to the city and I saw that people were just more expressive with who they were, it made me more comfortable to kind of get into a style and to rock a style that I was really proud of. That's something I dig. I really like it. You know, right I'm like, uh, different people are drawn to different ways. I don't care too much about what I eat. I mean, I'm not like a foodie by any stretch. Certain things, I don't, you know, I'm not really much into streaming shows. I don't watch a lot of streaming shows, but that's something that I really dig. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those, and I will say this with no shame. I'm one of those people that, Seven elements of clothing on the bed. What are you doing, cat? Where I'm gonna when I'm gonna leave the house? What's going on? <laughs> I'm one of those. I'll put on like a pair of pants and a shirt and be like, "Nah, this shirt would go better with that." Oh wait, no, maybe if I if I did these pants instead, like I'll dedicate a good ten to fifteen minutes to getting everything together. I mean, it depends. If I'm going to the deli, I'm not. I'm wearing sweatpants. But yeah, I know. Nobody gives a shit. Out, especially if I'm going out to a social occasion. Or I'm going out to, to have fun, 
then I will put what I think a lot of, especially males, would consider to be an embarrassing amount of time into getting ready and go through a variety of different combos before I'm, you know, before I'm eventually like, oh, this is it. I respect that. I mean, I, I, everybody's got an aesthetic or everyone I feel like should have or wants to have an aesthetic. And some aesthetics are a little bit more tailored or specific than others are. Some people don't though. Some people don't care. I mean, I have some, I have some good friends that are just like, it's, I have on one t-shirt and one pair of pants. (laughs) That is what I need to leave the house. Like it doesn't matter too much what the shirt says or how it fits. Like some people just, that's not important to them. Right. Yeah. Like they have different things that are important to them. And that's something that I dig. Like it's, I don't know if it's important to me, but I dig it. Like I feel good about putting together something that, that looks good and has a little bit of flash to it. But you're well put. I mean, I, as someone who owns quite a few hats, I, I understand that. And I am on a rare occasion hatless right now, but I, I do as someone with a five head, I also wear my share of hats. So I, I know the deal. Yeah. They're not fancy hats. Like, I mean, I wear baseball caps and like skull key, skull caps mostly, but you know. yeah, I got a lot of those, but the hats I really like to rock are like, they're tough. You can get the gems. You can get like thrift store gems for 20 bucks from time to time, but primarily right. they're like one to two fifty, one fifty to two fifty hats. Haberdasher hats. Yeah. I'm not a, I, I'm not a, I don't spend a lot of money on, I don't know. I, I don't throw money around. I can't afford to, but that is one of the things where I will spend. If it's a, if it's a good looking lid, I'll spend the money and, and get something that's, that's nice and that has a good form to it. You know, it, it all depends. Got to stay fly. <laughs> the other thing, it's funny, when we met up a couple of weeks back, like one of the first things you said that kind of made me laugh is you were like, I'm not a touchy-feely, huggy guy. And I was like, okay, cool. It just like, is is that, do you lead with that often? Or is that just like... Well, I don't know, because people people go in for embraces a lot in this city and people go in for the side kiss. Okay. Uh, I, worked, I work in hospitality and I did a lot of hospitality management. Right. So well, I'm not going to side kiss somebody I barely know. <laughs> I still work in, in hospitality, but yeah, I find like, especially post pandemic, I feel like I've got a break and it's, it's, I'm allowed to have a reset. I'll tell you what happened. What actually really changed my mind was I was at work at, uh, I was working at our wicked lady in the daytime there doing them office stuff. And a, kid came by and he was like, Hey, I want to talk to you about something. And I think he wanted to set up a show. I don't know what it was, but it was the middle of summer and he'd been outside and he was just dripping and he stuck his drippy hand out. And I was like, never again. No, that's, I mean, I'm not doing that. So then I just gave him pounds and actually it was kind of like, it kind of awakened me because at that time I'm like, I don't want to shake hands. (laughs) I just don't want to do it. I've been doing it for 40 years. I ain't doing that anymore. Like, and people still catch me off guard. Like I'll still shake a hand because someone jams it out there and you're like, fuck, all right, okay. Super awkward if I don't do it. But like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do that. But it's also tough because I found that it really bugs people. Like people, especially people, I I don't know. I, I, I'll just say, it, especially women that go in for like a hug Mm-hmm. And I don't want to hug them 
it sometimes it kind of bugs them out a little bit. You know, like they, they go in for like, hey, and sometimes when they meet me, sometimes they're like, it's great to meet you. And they'll go in for like the little side kiss. Like I work, the hospitality I work in is like Midtown, uh, Upper West Side sometimes. So people are a little bit more of that mm-hmm. kind of like European air of whatever you want to call it, sophistication, where the side kiss is more prominent than it would be in Brooklyn. Sure. Sure. But I've caught myself multiple times being like, whoa, like what, what are you, like what are we doing? Like, and it's, it's not like it hurts me necessarily, but. It's I not your like thing. Should be, in this day and age, like we should be accepting of people's physical boundaries. I mean, particularly post COVID. Particularly post COVID. So like I have, I, that's become part or of. Or in the throes of COVID, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. I've become more, uh, it's become part of my repertoire now. Because I'm still out two or three nights a week. I go out to events to host events with the job that I do. So it's still part of my thing where people, I'll just, I'll, I'll lead with my fists, so to speak. I'll lead with like a little bit of a fist bump. Sometimes oh, shit. I've gotten a couple like, nah, man. I've got some people and I'm like, you know, post COVID, this is where I'm at, you know? And then it's also like, to me, it also, there are people that I embrace and it also is more meaningful for me that way. Right. Like, I don't give a fuck about handshakes. Handshakes don't mean nothing to me. Nobody's carrying weapons. I don't need it. I don't need you to prove it to me. Like, whatever. I don't, I'm not angry about it, although it sounds like I am. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't give a fuck. Handshakes don't mean anything to me. Whatever. Right. I appreciate the fact of signaling someone's attention with some kind of fist bump or some kind of like acknowledgement. I get that a bow. Like I'd bow to people, but people would think it was appropriate and I don't want to do that. I think a bow is the fucking way to go. Like that's got to be number one because that's like, I'm giving you my full attention and respect symbol of respect. God yeah. damn it. Now that I'm saying it, that's what I want to do. It's a free world, Mitchell. You can bow to people. I don't feel, I feel like a white dude doing that. People are going to be like, who the fuck is this guy? Thinking? <laughs> Cultural appropriation. Yeah. That's, that's going to get labeled. So I'm not going to do that, but yeah. So like with, so I do hug people, although even the people I'll be honest with you and people would, sh- would probably tell you this, even the people I am the closest to all still say like, you're so awkward. <laughs> when you give me a hug, it's so awkward, but I want it to be like a kind of a level. You know what I'm saying? Like it should be meaningful. Yeah, meaningful. Like it shows that I have a connection with this person that has been forged over years. Right. Or even like when I see people, I've met people for the first time that I've worked on projects with for months and months and months that I have said, when I've met them, I've been like, can I give you a hug? Just because I feel like we've been through something emotionally with dealing with excuse me, day after day and night after night of like, make this revision, make, what do you think about this? This sucks. You suck. No, you suck. Like going through all that stuff. And then at the end of the day, you're like, we made it through and we, we birthed this project. So I get that. That's what I think. And like, it's weird for me, Mike, because I've had people that have been like, yo, you need to work it out. There's nothing to work out. You are what you are. People have said that to me. And like, and I've, I think it might, they might have a, they might have kind of a case. But at this point, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do it right now. Maybe sometime in the future. But I've definitely had people that are like, you're awkward and you need to work on that when you're greeting people. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I should. But, you know. I, I don't know, man. I think 
there are some people who will hug and kiss strangers and I, that's not necessarily my MO. Like I need to have a, a bond with you. And then like, once I like you, I am super affectionate, but you know, we have to sort of cross that, that line first. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not overly familiar with strangers. It has really so much to do with yeah, your family, how you grew up. Like, what Yeah. Was, uh, and I mean, I grew up in a very not, not affectionate environment. I yeah. sort of I went left on 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 my folks, but uh, even still, like and left, or you went huh? left? I went left. Oh, you went left. Okay. Yeah, because they're still not super huggy people, and I am a very huggy person. But again, like there has to be a, a relationship there. Like I, I'm not a a a stranger. You know what I'm saying? Plus, like I'm not. A, I mean, let's be real. The idea of the the psychist looks fake as hell. Like. It just looks super phony. Like, right. and I understand that that to to people that engage in it, it's not. It isn't. That's what they like to do. Right. And that makes them happy. But to me, it just also feels like oh, this doesn't really mean anything. There's right. this lack lack of meaning that goes with the gesture. Right. Because it's like, do you land on the cheek? You don't even like land. You just kind of kiss the air <laughs> on either side. It doesn't like most of the time. I I have gotten side kissed. It's not an actual kiss. The right. It's, it's it is the air. In the air yeah. on the side of your cheek. It's a gesture with no real intent behind it. Yeah. Or with no no actual affectionate intent behind with, with it. With no affectionate intent. Yeah, I totally get that. But yeah, you know, I thought if you asked me a long time ago, I would have said, yeah, my family was, we were affectionate growing up. But looking back, I'm like, we were pretty cold. Like <laughs> by familial standards that I've seen since, yeah, we were. It was. It was a little bit of a cold environment. I'm just. I just got to the point. Where I was hugging my dad like ten years ago. Yeah, he's one of my favorite people. But it. But it's also, also still slightly awkward. Like still, like it just doesn't. It's like this is one hug, and it works. But it doesn't like get into a groove where I'm like this is warmth and home and all that stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna do this because I love you so much that I want to do this. You know? It takes all kinds. Indeed, it takes all kinds. One interesting thing I've been reading about lately is the move towards allowing children to have some autonomy as to whom they show affection. I certainly grew up in an environment where older relatives were always expected to be greeted with a hug and a kiss. Give your auntie a kiss. And although I'm a fairly effusively affectionate person now, I certainly wasn't that way then and it was really awkward and uncomfortable. Ultimately, it's all about what your comfort level is, and I think teaching kids healthy ways to express affection and not forcing them to be affectionate when they don't want to, you never know, they might be trying to tell you something about the person you're asking them to be affectionate towards, is really important. So, uh, you know, Mitchell's not a huggy guy. That's cool. Um, affection isn't necessarily always shown through physical touch. Anyway, Mitchell's music exploits are well-documented on social media site near you. You can find him at the alias MitchellXXLeonard on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitch, where he performs his Sunday Sleepy Time sessions live every Sunday at 11 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, Mitchell, for taking the time to chat and for being such an open, engaging guest. Hey, y'all. It's me again. Just reminding you to please smash that subscribe button if you want to keep listening to this show. Leave a comment, rate us, whatever you can to push us up in the rankings. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you love the podcast, if you would like to be on the podcast, if you know somebody who is interested in being on the podcast or who would be a good fit to talk about masculinity, please feel free to reach out to me via my social media channels. I am on Instagram as DetoxPodGuy, and I am on Twitter 
at tismikejoseph. You can even drop me an email, old school style, detoxpod at gmail.com. By the way, not hating on anybody who still sends emails. I am old school proudly and I send emails all the time. Uh, Detoxicity is produced and hosted by myself, Mike Joseph. Uh, The music for this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Calvin Williams. The logo for this show was designed by uh, Jacob Block. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration to create this podcast. Uh, I thank you all for listening and hope that you're all keeping yourselves and each other safe out there. Take care. Peace. Peace.